Hello, everyone. My name is Jay, better known as Take. Welcome to another episode of the Whiskey Readers Podcast. Glad to have you here today. This is a little bit of a different episode. It is just me today, not uh, John and Jay as usual. You can catch us on the next episode. We'll be back to our usual shenanigans. But today, I am talking with eighth generation master distiller from Beam, better known as Jim Beam. They make Baker's Bookers, Knob Creek, Hardin's Creek, all sorts of cool stuff. And today, I, j- I had an opportunity to sit down with Freddie. You guys will enjoy this interview. You can also catch a recap of this trip. I was able to spend two days with Beam, had a really great time, learned a ton. Check out more on YouTube, a little more behind the scenes, a little more commentary, a little more fun. And let's go ahead and get on into the interview. Well, thank you for joining me here today, Freddie No. Um, I always like to start with a little bit of an icebreaker, just because oh, nice. I think that everyone tries to make these super formal. I like but, uh, it. So tell me, tell me about your first car. My first car? That's, oh, man, me and my best friend just had a conversation about this. He's telling me I need to go back and get it and start. Either he's like, you either need to give it to your daughter, which she'd probably be mad at him because she knows what it is. But uh, it was a 1989 Broham Caddy, Cadillac. Okay. Uh, my grandmother, so my, my Booker, my grandfather Booker passed away as I was turning, right after I turned 16, essentially. Um, and my grandmother drove this 89 Broham my whole life essentially and then when he passed he had told her in his kind of passing you know buy yourself a nice new car and that'll be the one to last you the rest of your life and so a little bit after everything was settled out you know and kind of life was back to normal she comes home with a 2005 uh cadillac deville which is kind of the modern version of the bro hammer when they right. kind of consolidated that so that was still sitting there uh, when when it was time for me to have a car, and so that's what it, they, my buddies called it the boat because uh, every time they drove it, they're like, "This is like a boat. You can't turn it. It's too long." And it was like a, I'm colorblind, um, but I always thought it was black. But they said it was like this burgundy, dark okay. burgundy color. So, yeah, I think it's fun. It always brings people back in time, right? Like, oh yeah, yeah like yeah. I, st- I drove a '98 Jetta that like, <laughs> nothing worked except the engine, but. You know, and, and kind of like the passage of time is interesting. You've been eighth generation master distiller for about 18 months now. Yeah. And I was looking back when I'm doing research and I was like, oh, it's been a couple of years now. And I was like, shit, no, it's only been 18 months. And I'm sure uh, at the same time, a lot of things have changed and nothing has changed. But but what for you has changed is you've come into the role of master distiller in just the last year and a half here. I think, you know, part of what I'll say has changed is like really where and, and how I show up in in the internal side of things, I guess, more than, than things you would probably see. Um, just through being a part of conversations that were de- developing whiskey or ideas or where our opportunities are and things like that. Um, and, and really, I think, to me, it's, it's shifted to how do I continue to kind of drive the whiskey that, that I want to produce and, and release. But also, you know, I, I mentioned my daughter, um, she'll be 15 in January. You start thinking about some of the whiskey I'm making now is going to be some of the early whiskey in the infancy of her career that she might develop as something that could be her own. So at the same time, it's like, you got to kind of look, I, I, there's a book out there, um, and I read many moons ago, Daniel, I can't remember his last name, but it's called Thinking Fast and Slow. Okay. you got to think about, that's kind of how it is a lot of times, right, of 
I'm having conversations about things for 24, 25. I don't like 24. I'm very upset that, that I'm in those conversations because it's almost 2024. We shouldn't be talking about anything else we can kind of pull together. But um, but also laying down new mash bills, as I mentioned to you, uh, that stuff would be years before it comes to life. So you really got to focus on it. Someone asked me one time, how do you do that? And I'm like, I cure country hams in between and garden. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, if you can wait nine years for a bourbon or eight years to watch flavor develop across a whiskey – Watching a garden grow across four or five months, or curing a ham across you know six or eight months, that's that that stuff flies by uh, compared. But that's a lot of it. Is I think finding ways to uh, be relevant in whiskey, right? Like uh, we have brands that have been around uh, for a long, long time. Some of them since I was born. Some of them well longer than I was ever thought of. You know, with Jim Beam um, and kind of some of the line extensions there. So it's really about how do you keep those names relevant in a time where if you ask me what I think about Jim Beam White Label, to me it's like the gold standard of what bourbon is. Um, A lot of people would probably laugh at that today because they're looking at what bourbon is today. Right, right. But for the long life of the industry, that's the the staple of a high-quality whiskey. And again, laughable to say today, a four-year-old bourbon at 80 proof was setting any bar, right, of, of high quality. So take that all the way to things like Booker's, Knob Creek. They need to be relevant in today's whiskey as well, and, and finding the right ways to articulate that is is a lot of how I'll say. Uh, I've had the ideas. It's more of how to articulate that idea to maybe the marketing team who, you know, they don't, they're not making whiskey, so they don't really understand what it is that I'm trying to bring out in the whiskey but how do they need to market it to people that are looking for that? So uh, that's more of it. It's kind of like uh, the gray space is where I've probably shown up a lot more and kind of articulating the one side to the other. Sure. It's funny you mentioned uh, Jim Beam White because I I always love when I speak with people from brands and I talk to enthusiasts and they're like, oh, but that that Jim Beam White, like like no one would want that. And I'm like, this is the house that like Jim oh, yeah. Beam White built. Like without Jim Beam White, there'd be no Hardens or, or anything no, like that. No, no, absolutely not. You know, um, and you know, I say it a lot and people probably don't really, maybe we could do a better job of educating that. But when I, we make Jim Beam the same way we make the whiskey that goes on Hardens or Booker's. It's how we articulate it outward from the back end of it that makes the other ones different or unique and special. Um, whether it's grain differentiation, uh, fermentation differentiation, uh, uh, distillation, aging, each of those things takes our brands into a different location. But the same rigor that goes into those high-end releases goes into Jim Beam White. So don't don't fret away from it. It's it's a utility. It's a tool, right? That's what I look at. It. Every every whiskey is a tool for an occasion. There's an occasion and experience for Jim Beam White. It maybe definitely doesn't show up the same as Hardin's Creek or Little Book, right? But those occasions exist where I in, enjoy Jim Beam White. Those occasions exist where I enjoy those higher-end releases as well. It's it's a tool for, for a, an experience to me. Totally. And that's that's a really good segue, too. You have four expressions of Hardin's Creek under your belt at this time. And, you know, clearly uh, you've been developing Little Book as well. That's through many chapters. Mm-hmm. You know, how can you compare and contrast, like, creating a Little Book batch versus the new Hardin's Creek? And, like, what has that taught you about the way you create new whiskeys for, like, a new generation of drinkers? Kind of two different folds. A lot of it for even Hardin's Creek is going in and, and maybe 
something I've already earmarked for something else, now that there's a new brand to tell a story maybe better than it was, is maybe I got to go back to the Knob Creek team and talk about why I want to position some of these unique barrels to be set up for, for Hardin's Creek and, and what maybe we're going to do differently for to support Knob Creek differently. Um, where Little Book was more of picking up kind of things that were um, – the land of misfit child, right? From uh, misfit toys from uh, from the movie and putting them together uh, initially, and now I'm going in and blocking stocks in advance to do the same thing. Um, so it, it's kind of two different uh, ways. I think what Little Book is there for is for people to go and explore new territory in American whiskey. And then when I'm developing Hardens, is more of it's the credentials we've had all along. We just haven't had the right brand to maybe bring those whiskeys to life, right? I, I talk about the brands. I look at them kind of like people in a way, right? Because there's so much I know about each of the brands and the whiskeys and the DNA. There hasn't been the right person to be releasing these upper-aged expressions that highlight unique areas because these brands have been built off of all of the locations, have been built off of all of the whiskeys or, or their own specific whiskey now that I know the nuances of each of the brands, I've got a place that I can take something that maybe doesn't fit Knob Creek, but is a, is a, a small part of the backbone of Knob Creek and highlight it over here on, on Hardin's Creek. So it's more about using it as a tool to showcase some of the credentials we've always had and kind of been sitting on maybe enjoying ourselves behind the scenes and bringing them to life in a way that to me, I, I I don't like the whiskey that's not raising the bar of education either to to you to or to a consumer. If you're drinking the whiskey and trying to figure out what you like about it, I hate that. I want you to be able to have that open conversation with me or someone on our team if it's it's submitting the questions or whatever it is. But more importantly, I hope that there's enough on the bottle that I'm not making you question it past wanting more information that I just can't give you yet, right? Like, uh, that that's a lot of it. I, that's what I'm hoping is like, okay, what else can Freddie and, and Beam deliver to help us solidify what we think is delivering the taste I like? That's what, because I, I, I say it a lot of like, I'm a consumer of a lot of goods outside of bourbon. I make bourbon and am a consumer. That's a little bit different than 90% of the things that I enjoy um, doing. So, um I just look at it a lot of times of what do I want to know in the things I enjoy and the things I resonate with are the things that I resonate with how they're making it or what their philosophy for making is. And I feel like that's what I'm here for is to give that to consumers. And hopefully at some point they resonate with that philosophy or that brand and, and enjoy our whiskey because that that's what it's for. We're, we're making whiskey to be shared and to be enjoyed. So, and it makes sense, right? Like consumers too are like focusing on whiskey more than they ever have. Oh, like yeah. the previous generation was very happy to like pick their brand and stick with it. Yep. Um, and over the last couple of years, like we've seen consumers like really hyper focus on specific elements, right? Like folks care about the recipes at Four Roses and the mm-hmm. tears and stuff like that. And folks are it's knowledge. Yeah. And like people are like super into the Rick houses over at Wild Turkey. And we're mm-hmm. starting to see Beam do a little bit of that as well. I liked what the Claremont, Frankfurt, mm-hmm. Boston, Hardin's Creek. Do you guys have any plans or are you interested in like starting to continue that with other brands like Knob Creek maybe like focusing oh, yeah, on yeah. Rick houses or? Uh, I wouldn't say, you know, 
we've got a, a, a lot of different brands and you know, there's a lot of different ways to focus on that. So not saying that they'll focus on that element, but Knob Creek is going to be having a new release come out in the next year or so that goes in a different direction than some of just maybe elevating age for Knob Creek. Um, and then um, other brands, other things, right? So to me, it's how do you highlight those things um, that are unique to the warehouse or unique to a specific one? And then how do you, how, how do those two things, are, how are they relevant together, right? Like Hardin's is a, a great place for that where uh, Knob Creek has already got a lot of things that's kind of representing and, and what I'll say should be used to educate people within whiskey on. Um, but how do we use the whiskey to create that tool from a different angle, I guess, is, is part of that. And then things like Hardens are there to go give that new education piece and that deeper uh, deeper tool. Um, and so, I mean, we'll, you'll probably see that on Hardens more so um, than, than other brands of maybe like series that, that are relevant to each other. Um, I mean, not that Little Book's not relevant one to the next, but it's not relevant to compare Little Books. It's, it would be more relevant to compare the Kentucky series on Hardens or even like the Colonel James B. Beam, which we did as a two-year-old release, but more of compare how the flavor in the whiskey developed. That's Get past the brands. Get past, What I'm trying to educate on is the flavor that the whiskey is developing on and, and watch how that comes across the portfolio. I can't do it all on one brand. And I, you know what I mean? I, the brand team would love that. But I've got a lot of these, as I'll say, kind of brands that we're watching over. And so each of them has its own way of, of maybe educating about something differently than, than the other ones. People write off Basil Hayden a lot because it's 80 proof. Right. Similar to what you're saying about the white label, right? It's like, don't write Basil off. There's a lot of good barrel finishes that we've done on there that they're meant to be enjoyed at 80 proof. Um, and, and, and that's what it's for. So don't look past them for that reason. Right. Yeah. And I, I always wonder too, right? Like, cause, cause some people complain that this brand only has one expression, right? And it limits them. And I'm like, that's got to make business very easy. As long as you keep oh, this one expression, absolutely. have a couple LTOs, but across all of your brands, you guys have so much going on. And I think it parlays well into the discussion. Like people ask me a lot, like, do you think a whiskey glut is coming? Right. Because these brands now have, have 20 different expressions. And my answer to them has always been no people just started innovating years ago so that they could release different kinds of yeah. whiskeys instead of more of one. But what's your opinion on the volume and just popularity of whiskey in general? Is there a glut coming? Are you guys focusing on overseas or are you just trucking on, trucking on? I think there's so many different elements that would give you the answer to is there if you told me there's no international growth at all then hell yeah there's a glut coming right because these distilleries have been ramping up production ourselves included in in anticipation that there's international growth we see it in certain areas um with certain brands too as well and uh, that's a lot of it but i can't answer that right i where I want it to go is an international uh, lens is, is open because if, if you look at world whiskey as a whole, sure. um, I think bourbon is probably the most abrasive to the thought processes on the background of it. And then, um, so we need to educate in a little bit different way. So it takes a little more time probably to get, I say that because if you look at scotch, 
compared to bourbon and then compared to Japanese whiskey, Japanese whiskey did a great job of using the educational tools Scotch had already laid down, right, right to, to educate on what's unique about or, or how Japanese whiskey elements are. I think we're just getting out of what are the elements of bourbon in America. So there's one journey that's going on there. And then internationally, we're still on that journey of what the hell is American whiskey or what is bourbon and what's, you know, I, I use the word blending. So a lot of my competitors won't even say that word still. And to me, that's a detriment to the international growth because when we're, again, I guess I can't really speak for their brands, but all of our brands are blended versions of how we make them set in these warehouses, different locations, and then blending them back to the profile. We're not just setting a warehouse full of it and making it one. There's a lot of pockets that we bring together. That's blending. We just never been using that word because of what the word meant in in the earlier days of, of American whiskey. So there's a lot of questions that would go into is there a glut or not, but I think if we use the tools we have at our disposal as an industry properly, there's no glut to be had because the flavor that's in American whiskey, scientifically speaking, is developed, you know, vanilla is one of the more common flavors in, in using a new cask. American whiskey is the only one that does that. That's the most liked flavor across the world. If you take every culture in the world, what's the most commonly liked thing? Vanilla. So there's a place for American whiskey in all of these cultures. It's how's it showing up? Is it articulated as vanilla? Or what are the words they use in their culture that reference back to the flavor of bourbon? That's kind of like that not so much guessing game, but that's where the, the, the Japanese word of gimba, where you go learn in, the, in, in this market how they consume products today. You know, if they're not drinking any kind of soda, effervescent soda or uh, things like that, or they use very specific fruits versus what we would maybe use as a traditional cocktail, we've got to find a new way to market to those people. So I think that kind of puzzle piecing together it's in a, to me, it's right now is the right time to be a consumer of American whiskey because we're putting that puzzle together differently for international than we are America. Um, go, go, go enjoy it, right? Go find those bottles and deliver what you like. That's the biggest thing for me is I don't like sharing the tasting notes a lot. I don't like when people are kind of sharing their tasting notes so detailed because your culinary experience delivers your sensorial whiskey experience and um, use it as a guide. But if you're not tasting it, don't think you're the, the moron. It's your, your, the person you're comparing to and your palate, they don't, they don't intermix very well right now. Or this whiskey is not intermixing very well for your palate. So it's, uh, it's funny you mentioned that too, because I oftentimes brands will reach out and I, I consult on the side from time and they'll be like, we want to put these 100 tasting notes on the side. And I'm like, don't do that. You know, people I don't even put any on there, right? Like people, people are already kind of intimidated. And like a lot of people are like, I can't taste whiskey. And I'm like, you just don't taste whiskey enough. Like I bet if you tasted yep. whiskey every day, you would come up with more notes. That's just exactly like, it. like no one wakes up and runs a marathon, right? Like you have no. to decide to, to run a marathon, but I mean, you don't wake up and do much of anything, right? right? Like, you just other than breathe and sure <laughs> and even cooking right like no one wakes up and just knows how to make food oh, like you've developed no. that over years i mean i i would say i'm a pretty good little kind of at home cook uh, my family loves all my food but one prime example of what i'll say to, to to launch this is i don't eat eggs i don't like the texture of eggs 
my wife would probably eat everything I cook for her except for an egg. I've tried it a hundred times. Right. And, and, you know, uh, my dad, he doesn't cook a lot of other things, but eggs very well. He loves eggs. Okay. They eat the eggs every time. But nine out of the ten things we lay in front, I guarantee they would pick what I cooked right. over what Fred's cooking. But those eggs, but right? So if I'm not consuming the same things, you know, that's what we should talk. When we sit down to taste whiskey, we should talk about what we've consumed in the last two to three days from a food-wise. or or And then be like, well, maybe we should just talk about what we like, not so much try to be on the same page. Um, that's a lot of it. So, yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of that. The, one of the things I would love to say is to break down the pretentiousness of whiskey, right? We've got these glasses here. It doesn't matter what kind of glass. Enjoy it, right? Like, you can say it it smells better. You can get better aroma out of this glass, but it doesn't matter. If you enjoy it in your solo cup, right. drink it out of a damn solo cup. I don't want to make those rules. Those are bad rules to be making, right? Like, to me, that means there's something wrong with your product. If you're telling me I got to drink it in that type of glass. Right, right. Drink it. My dad says it. Drink it any damn way you please. That's what we make it for. And that that's kind of how I – so that's why I don't like sharing the tasting notes. It's like it's your experience. I've kind of curated this to hopefully be a utility within a, more than one type of experience, but try it in your, your type of experience. That's a good point too, right? Like if it's not good in a red solo cup, like a Glencairn has never fixed a whiskey. Hell no. Hell no. That's a good, that's a good comment right there. That's You're exactly point. right. I dig it. And so, and that kind of part as well also. So in 18 months, you know, we were touring the Fred B. No, the, the smaller distilling property here. And, and you mentioned that every time you step foot in that distillery, you, you try and learn something. And so I'm just curious, you know, I, I went whiskey full time just a couple of months ago and I've been amazed at just how much I learn when you mm-hmm. steep yourself in that every day uh what's the most interesting thing you think you've learned this year just through through normal normal bourbon uh, making to take keep uh, there's some like things we've learned in there that could be very useful in really educational or scholarly writings um but copper utilization okay just to be a very broad topic and copper degradation through running it in the process and why it was used, why it's increased, what people think about copper compared to what it does is is very interesting. I mean, I'm not saying that it doesn't enhance, you know, it does enhance flavor, but where and how and kind of the assumption of a copper pot versus a stainless column to me are not the conversations we should necessarily be having um, around copper utilization let's go with that okay cool Copper utilization. <laughs> i'll take it that was a you know i love to ask that question of people or the other question i ask is like now that you're master distiller and like you're in the most glorious position from a public perception like what's your least favorite part of the job but like that's kind mm. of a meatball because everyone says yeah. expense reports so uh, mine, mine, <laughs> I, I don't like the form that an email and a text message and a phone call are now basically the same like they're all the same thing right i don't like all of all i'm more of the phone call communication let's get it done and move sure next so then it's like we start on a phone call then there's an email about the phone call and then there's a text hey did you see the email and my phone gets the brunt of the the negativity because i want to launch it but it's just the end result of this chain of so i don't the i'll say this 
the transactional nature of life, I don't, I don't enjoy. Okay. okay. It's, it's funny because you mentioned that. I, I recently learned how to enable do not disturb on my phone I, simply because of that. You might show me that. I've never done it. But my, my favorite final send off is just like, so we're at the high horse or Pearl or Old Talbot down in Bardstown. What's your beer in a shot? Ooh, Corona is the beer for sure. Okay. There's not even a question asked about that. That's my favorite beer. Okay. I it's like it. It's the only beer. I, it, Man, well over there's laughing, but that, that's the case. I, <laughs> that I is not to, not the beer I would have expected. I really, like it. I that's dig good. It. A lot of people say that actually. Uh, but so a Corona, it's kind of be, if we're doing a beer and a shot, I'm going to make everybody go back to the roots, Jim Beam White. So Corona and Jim Beam White. All right, Corona Jim Beam White. I know what I'm drinking at Taj tonight. Hell yeah! Uh, cool. Well, thank you for your time, Freddie. It's been great to have you on. This was uh, Freddie No, eighth generation master distiller here at Beam, and I think it's time we drink some whiskey. Cheers. Appreciate it. Cool. Thanks, Thanks man.